from GreenBiz Group. Welcome to this week's edition of 350. I'm Joel McCower here at GreenBiz 19 at the JW Marriott Desert Ridge in Phoenix. On this week's edition, why ESG is the new SRI, Tyson's new chief of alternative protein, the link between sports and health in underserved communities, and Tiffany's early warning system for problematic materials. It's green business in a blue box this week on 350. It's March 1st, 2019. Welcome to this week's special edition of Green Biz 350 from the Green Biz 19 conference in Phoenix. And joining me here is, of course, Heather Clancy. Hello, Heather. Happy Green Biz 19. Hello, Joel. Just to know that this is going to probably be one of the shorter editions, episodes of Green Biz 19 for two reasons. One, we have a ton of audio that we haven't been able to get through yet. So we're going to uh, run a lot of that next week. And second of all, we'd be tired. <laughs> we'd be very tired. <laughs> yes. It's a, this, is a, this is a full body, full contact sport putting on these conferences that starts at, I don't know, 7 a.m. and goes till, you know, sometimes the wee hours. And it's not all work. A lot of it's fun, and that's work in some ways, too. But I have to say that now that uh, Green Biz 19 is, is in the record books, uh, first of all, it is in the record books because this was our biggest ever. It's amazing. And, and what was kind of cool was that people would come and say this thing has grown and uh, this is amazing just looking out at the sea of people there but aside from size I I just the community spirit grows along with it I just find it astounding I had my I found myself in the position of introducing a number of people to each other and I would say can you can you introduce that me to that person you were talking to and I would love to make a connection and that and for me uh, it re- was a reminder of the community spirit you were just mentioning before, but also how much we are helping facilitate the conversation um, and how every conversation, how so many people in this community are willing to learn and listen. I actually introduced some people who work for the same company who had never met. <laughs> That's true. It's true. <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, you never know where it's going to go. But yeah, it, I mean, the serendipity, the you know, the pinball, the the, the collisions, accidental collisions of, uh, and I don't mean that in a physical way, of just running into people and meeting people and saying, oh, you know, you need to meet so and so. There, it was just, it's, it's extraordinary. And, and, and did we mention we're exhausted? Um, but there were some, some great moments. And I bet if I asked you, one of the ones you would mention is, is Ovi Mahaley, uh, the uh, former Atlanta Falcon uh, fullback, all pro, uh, who now uh, runs a nonprofit, the Ovi Mahaley Foundation, that helps connect the environment and sports with kids from uh, the, the hood, from neighbor, underprivileged neighborhoods, and basically helping them understand that there's a role for them too. And the role that he plays is through a superhero that he created in a comic book and of a, a African-American superhero with an environmental uh, pedigree. And uh, it, it's kind of cool. So they see themselves, they see what's possible, and he is changing lives. Um, and we'll play a clip from him uh, in a few minutes. Uh, it's just really terrific. And I know that he uh, loved being there. He loved meeting the community uh, and the community clearly loved him. Yes. To hear him talk about 
the conversations that he had with young African-American children uh, in his community, and they would say to him, you know, Mr. Mohaley, why would I care about this? This is a white person issue. This, this is something that, that rich people do, and, and they address the environment because they can. And his ability to remind them and, and show them that really this was about their health. This is about their, their future and, and their communities and how he could help them. So he kind of helped bring it back to their, to their home. For me, one of the most um, poignant moments was when he talked about his true inspiration, which was a horrifying um, episode with his son, um, who, who had a lot of respiratory issues when he was born. And, and they actually, he recounted the story of him not being able to take him home because the air quality was, was not good enough. Yeah, um, he, he was a preemie baby. Preemie both baby. His, both of his, mm-hmm. his children were severely premature mm-hmm. And, mm-hmm. And, and they did everything they could. And when they, the, day, the, the day he was strong enough to come mm-hmm. home, they the could. Atlanta air quality, was, and that's when he really connected it. Mm-hmm. But, but I want to add other th- one other thing to something you said, Heather, which is that, yeah, he saw that you know this made a difference to them, the kids that he's working with, but also he shows them the opportunity mm-hmm. in in jobs. environment sustainability, mm-hmm. in jobs in in their in their own communities and things that they can do. So it's really terrific and. You know, we've had several great, as you say, inspirational speakers, uh, Stephen Ritz from uh, Green Bronx Machine a few years ago. And, and I always just say, you know, we should, as a community, uh, be supporting these mm-hmm. efforts. Uh, you know, they're, they are doing God's work, and um, they are so inspiring, so uh, just inspirational in so many ways that uh, I just love that. Can we play that little clip now from part of uh, Ovi Mahaley from... Uh, the Obi, Obi Mahaley Foundation. This is my, um, my son, Obasi. And when people ask me why I really got into this space, it's because it's one thing when you're trying to do good, you know that there's an issue out there, it's another thing when it hits home. So my daughter and my son were both born severely premature. They uh, came into this world fighting. They came in two months early, um, blood transfusions, we had surgeries, we're sitting on, sleeping on the cots, eating hospital food, just trying to find a way to get him home. Doctor gave us about two months um, timetable. We got to that two months, decided to bring him home. And we're literally getting things ready to take him out the hospital into our car and go home. Doctor's like, we, we need to stop because the air quality in Atlanta right now is at a level to where it's not quite safe for him. It's safe for us, but his underdeveloped lungs, it um, could cause problems and could be fatal. And that took me aback because, you know, I was a professional athlete. You know, I, I was worth millions of dollars. I had you know, the house and the cars and, and I had you know, the fame. I had the best car seat, the best food, the best everything for him. But I couldn't give him the most important thing, the best environment. And as an athlete who was working in the space but wasn't really all in, you know, it's something that I think some people here can relate to where you're working in the space, but are you really giving your all? Can, can you do a little bit more? Is there something you can do to be more innovative, to be more creative, to, to have a bigger impact? And when this happened to me and happened you know, to my family, it was something that made me every day think about what am I doing to give my son a better planet? What am I doing to help people understand how important this issue is? What am I doing to really make sure that his kids and his grandkids don't have to deal with you know, testing the air quality outside your house? to make sure it's safe for your kids. What I started doing was doubling down. 
started working with companies, started working with uh, corporations, NGOs. Shoot, anybody would listen. You know, I wanted to talk to them about how they could make a difference and be able to get more people involved, get more people on board. And doing so isn't something that's going to happen overnight. It takes work, but you have to have the right tools. The tool I'm using is the first ever you know, black environmental superhero called Gridiron Green. So it, it, it's Black History Month, and I'm excited to finally you know, have a black environmental superhero. Uh, I have a picture with uh, Chadwick Boseman from uh, the Black Panther. I saw him at Comic-Con. This has been in my head for years. So I've been going to Comic-Cons, getting excited about it. I spoke to him. He said, oh, you're going to be the environmental Black Panther. I said, you know what? Yes, I am. Yes, I am. I'm going to trademark that right now. But uh, I, was, I was excited because this is a way to engage those who people say can't be engaged, people who say don't care. It's, you have to tell, talk to them in a way that resonates with them. Because I think every corporation here wants to get more involved in, in poor communities, in communities of color, wants to engage and tell them about, you know, not, we're not just have a great corporate responsibility, um, you know, uh, products in, in, our, in our corporation, but we want to go outside of that and reach out to the community. But they don't have the tools to do that, the resources to do that. With comics, with entertainment, with excitement, with a little bit of celebrity, that helps you get kids who otherwise would not even pick up uh, an environmental book or don't care about the carbon footprint, don't care about the water quality, air quality, they don't care about any of that. They just care about their immediate situations. But when you show them how they, they can make green by going green, save green by going green, show them how they can help with their sister's asthma, you know, help you know, find a, a new way to create income, that's when they get excited. You know, plus, we have the comics just at the beginning. We have an augmented reality curriculum. We have simply STEM curriculum where they can read a comic versus a textbook to learn, and then they can play a game rather than using pen and paper to make sure they know what they're learning. And every kid's gonna sign up for that. I know I would. So our foundation's doing all that we can to make sure we don't leave out the biggest population that needs to know about this, which are our communities of color and poor communities. For me, another memorable moment was the interview that our own John Davies did with Anissa Costa, and she's the chairman and president of the Tiffany & Company Foundation. And she was that first, running their philanthropy, and then she became their chief sustainability officer. And this was a great interview about the possibilities um, that a company can realize by aligning their philanthropic activities with their sustainability strategy. She threw out this statistic that only 1% of the philanthropic lip giving was focused on environmental programs. I just was astonished by that. I had no idea that it was that little. Um, so that for me was a really memorable moment. And she was also able to point to some very concrete examples of how her knowledge of, in, in particular, ocean corals and, and the organisms in oceans and, ha and how um, she was dealing with that, but also other minerals and so forth, the impact of these things. She was able to use that information to help product designers at the company understand the implications of using this particular mi mineral or gem and what would this do and, and is this a better uh, choice and, and she's able to address it now at the design phase. So here is a clip from that great interview um, from Anissa Costa. It's an ongoing conversation with designers, with their teams. I think that the way that we have tried to approach it is it's not about rules, it's not about yes or no, but it's about inspiration and it's about figuring out the right point in their process, not ours, that they should embed 
our team so that we can look into the products that they're interested in using, or even better, how are they innovating with new materials, new ideas. Um, so I think, again, we all know this, but it's like, how do you speak the language of the team or person you're engaging with? And um, we found it most productive to try to work within their world because it's a very um, interactive and fast-paced one. And I also think that it really helps that you know, if you read Women's Wear Daily, I mean, sustainability is now um, a front and center topic. I was just, I just forwarded along to our senior management team an article from Vogue magazine, because I thought, okay, everyone can, is gonna trust Vogue, um, in, our, in my company at least. Um, and they talked about the CFDA, which is the Council for Fashion Designers of America. They talked about terminology. Um, someone earlier was talking about the terminology, like is sustainability even the word, like does everyone have the same definition of the term sustainability? So I think it's just been about finding the right access points and then um, sparking excitement. I really enjoyed the interview that I did with Audrey Choi, who's the both chief marketing officer and chief sustainability officer for Morgan Stanley. And I have to say that in addition to that conversation, this was part of a new emphasis on green finance that we had at this event. Um, I co-hosted with Richard Madison, the CEO of TrueCost, which is part of S&P Global, the Green Fin Summit, which was the first thing, the first time we had done that, uh, and not, definitely not the last. We had 100 truly engaged people, about 60% uh, from companies, 40% from, from the financial community, people who don't typically come to our events, uh, you know, from CalPERS and CalSTRS and State Street, the big bank, and, and, and a whole bunch of organizations, ratings organizations and the like, really roll up their sleeves as we ask them to do during this, these summits to explore this, this barrier, the difference, the misalignment between what companies are reporting and companies complain about how much they have to report and all the forms they have to fill out and everything else. And the fact that for all that reporting, it's still not the information that investors need to make risk-based asset allocation decisions. In other words, what they would call decision-useful information. So we had a great, great uh, four-hour and 15-minute conversation. And um, thank you to TrueCost and, and to our other uh, partners and sponsors on that. Um, but then that conversation carried over into uh, the, the, the main conference, and part of that included a conversation that I did on the main stage with Audrey Choi, who is both the CMO, the Chief Marketing Officer, and the Chief Sustainability Officer for Morgan Stanley. She's been talking for a long time about both socially responsible investing and environmental and social governance issues, and I started off the conversation by positing that ESG is the new SRI, and here's what she had to say. ESG, I think one of the reasons that it's been able to accelerate so much in even just really the last two, three, four years, where it's gone from one out of every nine to one out of every six to one out of every five to one out of every four dollars, um, is because right now ESG, the way we're talking about it really is, it's, it's not just that it's investing in a way that is socially responsible, it's recognizing that thinking about the environment and the effects the company has on the environment, thinking about social issues and the effect that a company has on it, is actually part of being financially responsible and being a good steward. And so you're seeing much more of really focusing on understanding that these can actually be financial drivers. And when you get that, you can start to embrace a, a whole um, different way of talking about ESG that may have SRI as a component of it, but that it's also saying, these things actually, if you, if you do it right, 
not that those are some very important words, yeah. if you do it right, um, that you can really align financial value, risk reduction, and alignment with values. One of the things that happens with increasing frequency at our Green Biz event are announcements by companies of new uh, reports, new products and services, innovations. We had announcements this week from uh, EDF, uh, from SC Johnson, from 3M, and one from Iron Mountain. And here to talk about that announcement is our one of the newest members of the Green Biz team, the, our senior energy analyst and conference chair for Verge Energy, Sarah Golden. Hey, Sarah, welcome to Green Biz 350. Hi, Joel. It's great to be here. So tell us about uh, what, what you saw uh, when you on your visit to Iron Mountain. <laughs> <laughs> well, on Wednesday morning, Iron Mountain announced from the main stage a new program that they have, which they are calling the Green Power Pass. They then went into a little bit more detail about this in a side event, which I was lucky enough to attend. In it, they are talking about this mechanism that Green Power Pass has, which is the ability to certify that their customers are getting their energy from clean sources. So Iron Mountain is a major provider of server space, which is one of the most intensive industries in the US and it's growing at a huge rate. So the ability to source clean energy is incredibly important for servers. So what Green Power Pass does is provide a third party validated system for their customers to show that they have gotten their energy from renewable sources. That way their customers are able to use that to meet their other sustainability goals for their CDP submissions, to show that they're meeting their RE100 goals, and also any other science-based target that they have for renewable energy. Here's Kevin Hagen, who I got to speak to today, who is, works in the environment, social, and governance strategy at Iron Mountain, talking about how groundbreaking this agreement is. It's a really innovative way for data center customers, people in colos, to be able to claim the benefits of renewable energy from the colo provider. It's kind of a breakthrough because heretofore, that was a barrier because of complexities in the WRI or CDP reporting protocol. It created a, 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 a challenge in being able to clearly report the carbon and green power benefits, which was a problem for data center customers because uh, data center operations are big footprint environmentally, env for a lot of energy, etc. can be a really big part of a company's overall carbon footprint but it was impossible to do anything about other than external third party or um, uh, buying offsets and buying renewable energy certificates, which is a good solution, but it's always extra transactions and extra cost. By working with the Future of Internet Power Working Group through REBA and BSR, we were able as a consortium of the industry to build a better mousetrap. By having that protocol and a, a mechanism to allow data center customers to take advantage of the data of the green power from the data center provider, we open a door to a whole new audience for renewable energy. Now when data center uh, customers can take responsibility for that footprint and have a mechanism for greening it, not just with Iron Mountain, we're thrilled to be first in the space, and that means that every data center customer can now really, uh, hate to be too glib, but they can now use their power for good. Can you help, help quantify the energy intensity of data centers? 
data centers are uh, out of sight, out of mind kind of uh, kind of impact environmentally and energy wise. Every company, well, most companies are doing something around cloud deployments or having a mirror backup for disaster recovery or just operating their business on uh, their apps and their business and their websites and their infrastructure on data centers. That's growing so quickly that today it's estimated that the data center industry is responsible for more carbon pollution than the airline industry, which is pretty shocking. And what's kind of even more interesting is it's growing much faster. Big names like Facebook, Salesforce, Google, Microsoft um, have been instrumental in creating the market for corporate renewable energy buying. They actually started this whole thing four or five, five or six years ago and actually created the products, created access to market, created the whole phenomenon of corporations buying renewable energy directly. It's, they have created a market, created an opportunity. The and but is that even with the big folks being 100% renewable energy, the impact of data centers is still accelerating. Um, and now we need the next tier of customers, all the folks with a couple of racks and a colo or a small footprint someplace to have access to renewable energy so that they can get green too and help the whole industry. This program is real. They actually have customers already and I'm, I know that there was a customer here at the event. Um, could you tell us a little bit more about why WeWork is one of the first um, clients of this new program? Yeah, so WeWork has a goal to reach 100% carbon neutrality by 2023. WeWork is already a customer of Iron Mountain, and so they were on the forefront of this agreement because they're very excited about being able to immediately show that their servers are running on 100% clean energy. But in addition, something that's very cool about this agreement is although right now it's for the server farm, there's implications for what this process does, and that is providing this verification that energy is coming from clean sources. So what WeWork is really excited about is the potential to show that they have, they're getting clean energy for their facilities also, which are mainly rented. So they're able to have a, a mechanism to go to landlords and ask them to be able to provide uh, documentation that their facilities are also being, um, being powered by clean energy, which helps them meet that carbon neutrality goal without needing to own their facility and being able to control that themselves. Um, so I spoke to Alina Frankov uh, on Wednesday morning, who is running WeWork's Global Energy Program, and she told me a little bit about how simple this process is for her and why they were one of the founding members of this collaboration. Basically, once you sign a contract with Iron Mountain, you're automatically enrolled, um, and they provide third-party uh, vetted documentation that you know they're they're honoring what we agreed to. Um, and that's way easier than you know installing solar on your rooftop or signing a power purchase agreement of any kind. So I'll take the solution any day. <laughs> it's exciting to us because um, I think the program was launched under the auspice of it being offered to co-location clients, um, but we actually, majority of our load is coming from manufacturing. And so I'm excited for this to roll out to just general landlord-tenant relationships. Um, and because we're kind of both, we're kind of a tenant and a landlord in, uh, in our business, um, I'm excited to work with Iron Mountain further to get this out to the industry. All right, Green Power Pass sounds very cool. Thank you, Sarah Golden. Thanks for having me.
One of the other recurring themes throughout Green Biz 19 was the circular economy, which is basically a recurring theme in everything we do now. And here to talk about uh, what that sounded like here at Green Biz 19 is our own director and senior analyst of circular economy, Lauren Phipps. Hey, Lauren. Hey, Joel. So give us a little flavor. I know there were a lot of sessions on the main stage and uh, on the, in the breakouts, and you and I hosted a, a breakfast on Thursday about circular economy. Give us some of the things that stood out for you. So one of the big conversations that's happening around the world right now is, of course, plastic waste, marine debris, and what to do about that problem. One of the biggest collaborations that's gotten a lot of attention is the Alliance to End Plastic Waste, which has committed to investing a billion dollars to end plastic waste. And a lot of the conversation is around what does it actually mean next? Um, One thing that Rob Kaplan, who is the founder of Circulate Capital, one of the core partners for the Alliance, he said on the main stage, commitments get you attention, but now is when the work has to start. And that's very true. I think a lot of companies and professionals are wondering how to actually achieve some of the audacious goals that they've committed to and what to do about it in practice. And I know you moderated a panel with Tom Zaki, and of course we've written a bunch about him. He's the CEO of TerraCycle, who also recently launched this new service called Loop. Is that what the panel was about? Exactly. So it was a conversation with Tom and uh, folks from UPS and Nestle talking about what the project actually looks like in practice with the two pilots and then plans to come in the future. So this is the reuse program. What, what did UPS have to say about what they're doing and why they're involved? The big thing that Quint Marini from UPS had to say was around their primary packaging. So in addition to the really beautiful containers that you'll get your ice cream and your refillable hand soap in, uh, UPS has designed these packages that actually get those to your front door. So it was interesting to hear from him about what those look like and what the plans for them are in terms of their durability. When you listen to the conversations taking place at GreenBiz19 about circular economy, all of which is are fairly nascent. Do you get a sense that the progress is being made? When you step back and you think about what happened this week, what's your assessment of where we are? It's pretty incredible. I think companies are starting to ask much more specific questions and to recognize beyond the high-level aspirational circular economy what they could do. They're starting to translate that into more meaningful commitments and more meaningful next steps. I think there's still a lot of work to come and a lot of uncertainties that will get teased out in the coming years, Um, but I've been quite impressed by the depth of commitment and curiosity. Well, lots more to come on circular economy, specifically at the conference that you, Lauren Phipps, is uh, putting together uh, called Circularity 19. And, and that's our next event coming up in June in the Twin Cities, Minneapolis, Minnesota. Um, thanks for stopping by, Lauren, and uh, it's always great to hear the latest in circular. Thanks, Joel. So, Heather, before we wrap up this episode from Green Biz 19, are there any other themes that you came across this week that are noteworthy? As it happens, I had two great conversations this week about alternative proteins and the importance of that for sustainable food production in the future. Two interviews, one with Sander Saru, who is in charge of the Protein Challenge 2040, which is uh, moderated in part by the Forum for the Future, and Justin Whitmore, who has just assumed the new title of Executive Vice President of Alternative Proteins for Tyson Foods, in addition to his current title as Chief Sustainability Officer. Justin, welcome to Green Biz 350. Thanks for joining us. 
Thanks for having me, Heather. It's great to be with you. First, I, I would be remiss if I didn't ask you about that little new phrase in your title. Um, can I ask you what that means? Yeah, so as of yesterday, we've uh, announced a new organization that I'll be leading called our Alternative Proteins Business. So Tyson Foods will be launching products that uh, will sit alongside our traditional uh, animal agriculture products, but focused on things like uh, sausages, burgers, chicken, but with veg-based uh, alternatives. Think of legumes, pea protein, soy, uh, mushrooms. I can't go into detail on the specific products. That's why I'm saying all the different areas because it's, it's very new, but we're excited about this new opportunity for our company. Great. Well, thank you for that. Um, last uh, year, we talked a little bit about the science-based targets that, that you had put in place at Tyson. Um, this time, I want to chat with you about a new um, land stewardship initiative that you've got going on. You've committed to su um, supporting improved environmental practices on 2 million acres of corn by the end of 2020. I know that's just part of it. Um, but can you, can you parse that pledge more specifically for us? What, why are you getting so big into land stewardship? What does it mean um, and why does it matter? Yeah, so a couple of big things uh, when it comes to land stewardship. The first is part of our strategy, our goal and purpose as a company is to sustainably feed the world. And in order for us to do that, we have to think about our entire supply chain. That's why when we had our discussion about our science-based greenhouse gas targets, we made targets in scopes one through three. So if you think about scope three, that's outside of our owned operations, that's into our row crop farmers that provide grain and feed that ultimately go to the animals that ultimately hit your plates as a consumer. So we have to think about how those row crop farmers uh, can improve practices and how we can partner with them. And that's where this land stewardship work came from. Now, the focus of the work is on nitrogen utilization, which can improve soil health, reduce greenhouse gas emissions, improve things like water or crop runoff. And uh, we're working with EDF, Environmental Defense Fund, with My Farms, and with Farmers Business Network to actually launch pilots focused on these areas. And we're going to use their cloud-based software to measure the results of new agricultural practices at this scale. Things that have been done for a very long time, but at the kind of scale we're driving for, we're really excited about this potential. Yeah, so you just mentioned the, something I was going to just ask about, but uh, is that partnership in the United States uh, starting? Yeah, it's going to start in the U.S., uh, but obviously we'll look at the results of these programs and think about how it could apply to our global footprint. Uh, Tyson Foods has traditionally been a big player in the U.S. with exports around the world. We actually have recently acquired companies, Keystone, for example, that have operations in Southeast Asia and Australia. We have a, another acquisition that's in Thailand and Europe. So what we learn here, we'll want to apply to our global footprint. But first things first, let's do 500,000 acres with two pilots, with corn, with corn uh, uh, farmers, and then take those learnings and apply them as we go. So you mentioned two different software platforms yes. um, that will be instrumental in helping. Can you, can you talk a little bit about why digital technology will be important in this initiative? Uh, that's a great question. So the important thing is actual outcomes, real impact. And what we did was scour the landscape of technology providers. We talked with agronomists, we talked with ag retailers, we talked with farmers, and we looked for who's doing a great job in actually measuring the outcomes at the farm level when it comes to using practices like split uh, nitrogen application in different season or 
reduce tillage or when you use a nitrogen stabilization, a stabilizer in a given environmental, in a given environment, what happens? And we found that my farms and that farmer's business network had the sort of technology reach uh, to help us do a good job of measuring the changes that we're wanting to incentivize in the supply chain. So we, we're starting with those two pilots. Yeah, so uh, kind of an obvious follow-up is how do you get the farmers to use that sort of software? Well, two big things. First, the farmers have to uh, improve yields. They have to be able to show that when they make these changes, it actually helps them and their families be able to create more value. So the first thing we'll need to do is work with agronomists who they trust locally and help them think through what changes they make, make year over year. You know, Tyson Foods um, will have to partner and work with an extensive network of folks to help encourage some different behaviors. And frankly, the farmers are gonna to respond to what helps drive improved performance and yields. And that's what they've done, and that's what's led to great sustainability improvements for generations, is farmers making those changes on the ground. Mm -hmm. uh, the second thing that we'll wanna do is appropriately incentivize, whether it be through our supply chain through to our customer consumer all the way back to the farm uh, the behavior change so we're getting skin in the game we're investing behind this and hoping to partner in a way that farmers see hey this is this is good for us it's good for our bottom lines and it's good for the environment one last question uh, what does success look like i think that is a very long-term vision for us i think if you think about a food system that can take from the environment and give back to the environment, right? All the, whether it's emissions, whether it's water, whether it's the impact on land, that we're able to have a, uh, an environment that is not impaired and, is, and a future generation can be able to thrive in the way that we can, then we have an extraordinary setup. And so our work every day is thinking about what are the steps that get us to that long-term vision of an environment that's not impacted at all by the global food system. And Tyson, with our scale and our size, particularly in the US, has an opportunity to lead in that journey. But that's a, a far off vision uh, that's a, a long way off. Uh, this is just one step in that uh, journey. Thanks for joining us on Greenbiz 350. Thanks so much, Heather. So here at the GreenBiz 19 event, lots of talk about sustainable agriculture, the future of the food supply, lots of connections being made between sustainability and human rights issues, um, including health and, and, and protein, right? Well-being, how do you feed the future? Um, and here to talk with me a little bit about this issue is Sandra Saru. She is the U.S. Director for Forum for the Future. Sandra, welcome to GreenBiz 350. Thank you, Heather. It's wonderful to be here. So the Fourth Future has been involved for some time with uh, something called the Protein Challenge 2040. So f first of all, for those who don't know much about the, the initiative, the global initiative, can you tell me a little bit about the, uh, the, the vision? Yeah, so, so Forum is a nonprofit that looks to catalyze a systemic change for a just and sustainable future. And we've really been working um, in the food system for a long time. Um, and in over time, I've realized that one particularly important intervention is to really think differently about and fundamentally differently about the protein, or protein system. Um, if there's one thing as a consumer that we can do uh, to, to think about our climate impacts, it's what we eat, given those impacts. Uh, so we've really looked across the system um, 
both what we're feeding our animals and where plant-based um, nutrition can go and uh, and all the way through to human human uh, consumption. So you're running a program right now in the United States. You mentioned plant-based a moment ago. Um, plant-based protein alternatives, I think you're talking about. You'll get to that in a moment. But uh, you're running a pilot in some schools. Can you tell me a little bit about the, uh, the intention behind that? Yeah, we really focused in on schools, really thinking about children, uh, not only as our future leaders and consumers and, and parents, but, but also recognizing them as an agents for change in themselves. Um, you know, we look at a lot of movements that have actually started with students when you look at uh, issues like smoking and recycling. And so we've started out this very much, our, our, our vision is to work on consumption um, as a society, uh, but we started out with these 10 wonderfully diverse school districts and thinking about how to engage students um, so that they're aware of these plant-based proteins and that they can be delicious and nutritious um, and also have an impact on the environment. So I don't know how long you've been doing this, but can you tell me a little bit about the success of the, of the test so far? Any particular results you want to point out? This work in schools has, has really just begun. We're, um, we've been working with food service directors um, about what their needs are. And they um, originally came to us and said, listen, the, the these, these products don't actually even exist. We, we're not happy with what we have. We want um, food that, that's delicious and, and that children want and, and that meet our needs and that we can incorporate into our kitchens. And, and their kitchens completely range from heat and serve kitchens all the way to, to full service kitchens. So we have to really accommodate variety of needs there um, and so we put out this RFP to to food manufacturers and, and others in the space is saying listen um, is anyone willing to, to innovate and really try something different along with these school districts so we've really been collecting a great group there all this work um, is very exciting but um, the food service directors in our larger community has recognized that we need the children to actually choose this food and understand what it's about. And so alongside that, we're just now launching this um, awareness and engagement campaign. And so we're just starting to wanting to listen to students and building on the work that so many other NGOs are also doing to make sure that um, this food that will be created will be eaten as well. So one last question for you, and that is how can the the food suppliers like you were just mentioning before, how can food companies, the food and agricultural industry um, the businesses of food help what, with what you're doing? How can they participate? What's the call to action for them? The call to action is to really think, um, be open to innovation and, and working through. The, the, there's certainly signals. This is a fast-growing uh, industry. There's so many um, there's so many reasons to really look into this in terms of their own environmental impact and their nutritional impact. Of course, um, nutrition totally varies by market. Here in the U.S., we have an overconsumption problem. It's not true in other in other countries. But but just thinking through what um, what shifting uh, your portfolio will do for for these really important sustainable challenges. Thanks so much for being with us on Green Biz 350. Thank you, Heather. And that's our 350 podcast from Green Biz 19. As always, go to greenbiz.com slash 350 and you'll find everything you want to know about the organization's stories and events we mentioned in this episode. While you're over there, check out the link to our other podcast, Center Stage, the best of live interviews from Green Biz events. Our email address is 350 at greenbiz.com. 
Heather and I will be back next week from our home bases in New Jersey and California, respectively, with a little more sleep than we have this week, too. Until next time, from all of us here at Green Biz Group, I'm Joel McCower. Thanks for listening. <laughs>